Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be talking about Season 6, Episode 11, Appointment in Samara, written by Sarah Gamble and Robert Singer, and directed by Mike Roll. And for those who don't know, the title is based on a short story by Somerset Maugham that's a retelling of an old Middle Eastern parable in which the speaker is death. And it's such a short story that I'm just going to read it. There was a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to market to buy provisions. And in a little while, the servant came back, white and trembling, and said, Master, just now when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and when I turned, I saw it was death that jostled me. She looked at me and made a threatening gesture. Now lend me your horse, and I will ride away from this city and avoid my fate. I will go to Samara, and there death will not find me. The merchant lent him his horse, and the servant mounted it, and he dug his spurs in its flanks, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he went. Then the merchant went down to the marketplace, and he saw me standing in the crowd, and he came to me and said, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? That was not a threatening gesture, I said. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. So whatever this poor servant tried to do to escape his fate drove him into his fate. There's no getting around that. Unless you're Dean Winchester. Who gets the lesson in all of this? Trying to change everybody's fate? It only goes so far. And this episode is that little short story, basically. This is our first true lesson in the balance of nature of cosmic consequences, where changing one person's fate will ripple throughout the world in unpredictable and often tragic ways. So is it better to fight to save those whose time is up or to let nature take its course? Which fights are worth fighting and what lessons can we learn from all of this? Because there's no simple answer to the question. It's also where we get the first major hint at what season six is all about in direct and unequivocal terms. It's about the souls. What even is a soul? And what lengths will Dean go to save Sam's? And I personally happen to love every single episode where death is featured, because we always learn so much from them. But even now, I will still rank this episode in my top five favorite episodes of the entire series. The list shifts around a bit, depending on my mood, but it's right up there with, like, Faith, Moria, Lazarus Rising. I love this episode. It gives us so much that is meta-relevant to the entire series. Plus, we get Balthasar, which is always a plus, even if he is inadvertently nudging Sam into attempting to off Bobby. We'll get to that. We're going to be going through this one with a fine-tooth comb, and there's also a fair amount of extras this week, including a video interview with Robert Englund, Freddy Krueger himself, or in this episode, Dr. Robert. (laughs) So all that is available to you as well. For now, let's head directly into the then segment. 
We begin with Death's introduction last season and his offer to Dean of his ring with all conditions attached and the reminder that you can't cheat death. We're then reminded of Dean's first meeting with Tessa the Reaper way back at the beginning of season two and then again in the middle of season four when he meets her again and finally remembers her. We also get reminded of Balthazar asking Dean if he has any idea what souls are worth when we learned Balthazar was trying to buy up people's souls in 6-3. And then Sam and Dean sitting on the hood of Baby at the end of 6-9, clap your hands if you believe, Dean asking Sam if he's having second thoughts about getting his soul back. And then last week, 6-10, Cass warning Dean that because of the torture that Sam's soul has been enduring in the cage, It might destroy Sam to try and reunite him with his soul, but Dean insisting that Sam needs his soul, that he's just not Sam without it. How important it is for a human to have their soul, and Cass really not understanding that yet, but also very realistically, he wants Sam to survive, but to Dean, to a human, what Sam is surviving as right now isn't human, you know? And what's the quality of the experience if you have no soul? What's the point, for Dean, anyway, of living without it? And on that note, we come to now. We open with Dean pulling up outside an Asian market, going inside and being directed to go all the way to the back, up the stairs, in a very unsanitary-looking hallway. He encounters Dr. Robert. Robert England, <laughs> Freddy Krueger, who apparently knew John Winchester, stitched him up more times than he could count back when he still had his medical license, which is very reassuring for what Dean's about to go through, combined with the germiness of the place. Inside his little office, Dean is introduced to his assistant, Ava. Dean looks nervous, though. He's like, so your success rate with this, you've done this many times, and... Dr. Robert tells him, oh, my success rate's about 75%, which is an interesting fact to remember at the end of this episode when Dean is talking to death again. For Dean to even be considering this with a 75% chance of not dying from this, there's a 25% chance that he's going in here knowing he's about to die. And to him, it's worth it because what else does he have to live for if he can't save Sam? Dean hands Dr. Robert an envelope full of cash and another letter addressed to Ben Braden, not to Lisa, I guess apologizing for everything he put him through or whatever. And he tells him if something goes wrong, you know, I don't wake up from this. Would you mail this for me? Dr. Robert's like, nothing for Sam. And Dean's like, well, if this doesn't work, Sam won't care either way, which is true. Dean knows flat out Sam does not care about him right now. Unless he can save Sam's soul, he'll never care about anything again. Eva hooks Dean up to an IV, and he's like, ugh. And she's like, don't be a baby. Dr. Robert holds up a big syringe, tells Dean he has about three minutes. And we watch Dean as he slowly gets woozy, passes out, and then flatlines. He's dead and standing over himself. 
Dean walks back downstairs to the deli. Nobody can see him because he's a ghost. And summons Tessa, the Reaper, to whom he has a connection. That's what the Latin spell he says apparently translates as. And she's shocked. Why are you dead? Dean tells her that he needs a meeting with her boss. She argues with him for a moment that she will not summon death. That's not how any of this works. Dean keeps trying to insist until death himself shows up. And we cut to the title card. After the title card, we go right back to the middle of their conversation. Dean tells death he has something of his. Death's like, oh, you mean my ring? I recall loaning that to you. Dean thought he could use the ring as leverage to get what he wanted from Death, like trade the ring for Sam's soul. And Death's like, what makes you think I need you to retrieve it for me? So you don't have leverage, you just have hubris. Dean brings up what he wants. Sam's soul out of the cage. And Dean also is the one who mentions Adam's soul. And I figure we need to talk about Adam but I'm going to wait until after this scene is over and then come back and revisit that. But Dean is like, well, while he's down there, may as well get Adam too. We keep flashing back upstairs to Ava and her pocket watch as she counts off three minutes that Dean paid to be dead for, and it's getting close. Death tells Dean, pick one. You can't have Adam and Sam. You can have one or the other. Put on the spot like that, of course, Dean is going to pick Sam every single time. No hesitation, no question. Pick Sam. But even Death confirms that after a year down there, Sam's soul has been filleted down to the raw nerve. Dean asks if there's a way for Death to hack the hell part off Sam's soul, and Tessa rolls her eyes, and Death gets up and like he's going to walk away. And we hear Ava counting down three, two, one, and then they try and bring Dean back upstairs. They're shocking his heart. He's running out of time. Death scolding Dean downstairs about what a soul is. Do you think you can just slice it like a pie? He's like, not even I can do that. There is something he might be able to do to put the hell time behind a wall in Sam's mind. Dean is thrilled at even having that as an option, though, that even this temporary wall, that when it collapses, Sam is done. Well, at least he's not in hell anymore. Dean's like, okay, do it. Death's like, I never said I'd do it. Death tells Dean it will be his prize if he wins the wager. He has to go put on Death's ring and wear it for 24 hours. He has to play the role of death. Back upstairs, Dr. Robert and Eva, of course, are still unable to revive Dean's body. They've moved on from trying to shock his heart back awake to giving him adrenaline shots directly to his heart. Dean asks why. And death's like, it's simple, Dean, because... And then in that moment, he wakes up back in Dr. Robert's office. I personally believe that death was in control of Dean's entire experience while he was dead. That nothing Dr. Robert could have done would revive him until death was ready. And I believe that it was death who pulled the trigger on exactly when Dean would wake up. 
He didn't have an answer for Dean and his question of why, which was the thing that every person that Dean will have to reap as death will ask him. I don't think even death has a definitive answer to that. He gives them an answer that in some ways is tailored to that person. If you'll notice, Dean's answer to everybody who asks him the same question is tailored to that person and Dean's feeling in that moment. And it's just a spontaneous act of creation to provide an answer to that question, even if it's ultimately not obviously meaningful. Like death here, waking Dean up. The, the point is the game. He can't tell Dean directly. That's just how he works. He's got the natural order, and he can't just go handing out the cheat codes, you know? But I want everybody to pay attention to that, because as we go through the episode, we'll deal through the rest, and I have more to say on this at the very end. And Dean immediately starts complaining, like, God, you couldn't have given me a few more seconds? And Dr. Roberts like, you've had seven minutes. We didn't think we were going to get you back. But Dean made it back, and he heads back to Bobby's, where he explains his plan to Sam, that death could put up a wall, that he's going to do this, and Sam is arguing. He does not want Dean to do this. He doesn't think making a deal with death, even for this little game, is worth it. Sam just wants Dean to leave it be. And of course, Dean can't, because this is not Sam. Dean explains the wall that death will put up, and Sam's like, oh, so that's permanent? That's forever? And Dean's like, well, he said it could last a lifetime, and Sam just finds this unsatisfactory. You're playing pretty fast and loose with my life here, Dean. It's like, Sam, your soul part of you would hate who you are right now. Bobby brings up the point of death would not just do this for free. What do you have to trade for it? Dean explains his wager, and Bobby's just like, why would he want you to do that? And Dean's like, I have no idea, but I'm doing it. Sam storms out. He's like, I just have to go wrap my head around this. No, he's trying to wrap his head around a way to make it impossible for his soul to be returned, even after Dean sacrifices for it. And it's like, oh, Sam with a soul would hate you, dude, so much. (laughs) We cut to Sam being just a little bit shifty out in the scrapyard. He walks right to a hole in the ground and is kind of surprised to see the hole. Dean walks up behind him with Bobby and he's like, you looking for this? He's already dug up Death's ring where they'd hidden it. He at least suspected that Sam might go for that. So Sam's avoid getting my soul back part one foiled. Dean tries to reassure Sam. He's like, I'm your brother. I'm not going to let you get hurt here, okay? You've got to trust me. Sam verbally says that, okay, yeah, he's going to trust Dean on this. Dean asks Sam if he's sure, and Sam's like, yeah, you're the one with the compass, so, uh... Dean's doing everything he can to be reassuring and stand his ground on this, because it is that important, and I would say it's that important to Dean, but... Man, it's that important to Sam, too, even if he doesn't realize or understand why right now. As Dean walks away, 
He whispers to Bobby, watch him. He knows Sam's going to pull some other shit. He does not trust Sam as far as he could throw him. Back in the house, Sam asks Bobby, so is this the part where you pull a gun on me and lock me in the panic room? And Bobby's like, do I have to? And Sam's like, eh, rolls his eyes a little bit and tells him, you know, Dean's got to do what he's got to do, I guess. And Bobby eyes Sam up from behind. is like, yeah, we all do. He does not trust Sam as far as he could throw him either. I think Dean probably would have been better off and Bobby probably would have been better off if Dean had just not said anything to Sam about it at all. Just been like, I got something I got to do for a day and blah, blah, blah. Paint it like it's something else entirely and just gone off and done this because that would have avoided so many problems. And before we get to Dean putting on the ring, I am going to backtrack and talk about Adam in the cage. It was Dean who mentioned to death here, oh, plus our brother Adam's down there in the cage, before death made him that offer. Well, you get one or the other, make a choice. Forcing Dean to make a choice. And for years, until season 15, when we finally learned that Adam had indeed been in the cage with Michael that whole time, it's something that I never believed. I always thought that Adam had been granted the terms and conditions of him letting Michael possess his body was that he would be returned to heaven to be with his mom. That was the kindest thing I could imagine for Adam. Not only that, it was the kindest thing that I could imagine for Sam. Dean in this episode is the only one in a decade to remember that Adam was in the cage and give a shit about it at all. Sam, whose soul spent a year in the cage with Adam apparently also in there, never thought once, never mentioned him again, never was like, we've got to do something to save our brother Dean. He's in there suffering and I know what he's going through and we can't leave him there. Why would Sam never even mention it as one of the things he feels bad about? Is Sam really that self-centered, that uncaring, that cold? I don't think he is. So the fact that Adam still was in the cage bothers me to this day. I would have been fine if they'd said Adam's soul went off to heaven and that was the end of it. Like, if they had just given us that conclusive proof, like they did about Jimmy Novak, who died in the same way that we saw Michael get burned up by holy fire in 522 before he got thrown into the cage. That could have been the perfect moment to say Adam's soul was released and he went to heaven. And when Michael's body came back, it was just Michael in there. Like Cass was the only one inside his body after he got blown up in at the end of 422. The fact that they brought Adam back saying he'd been in the cage all those years just makes me feel and think less of Sam as a person. Anything would have been better than that, than having Sam just be cool with abandoning him. I just cannot reconcile that with who I understand Sam to be. And it makes me kind of angry. So I was really hoping sincerely, genuinely hoping for years 
that Adam had gotten his end of the bargain, that he would be allowed to go to heaven to be with his mom. You know, death in this episode implied resurrection, back to life. And that's not what Adam was ever even promised. Just removing his soul and sending it back to heaven in fulfillment of the deal that he made with Michael would have been fair enough. But it is what it is. And they did what they did. And I have no idea why. And it's one of those things about the show that I just cannot reconcile. And so a lot of my notes about this episode do involve the mention of Adam as I understood it before season 15 aired, before we knew that Adam truly had been in the cage all this time. Some of my meta became kind of like, okay, whatever, pointless. But it would have made so much more sense to me personally and how I understand the characters, how I understand the metaphysics of the show, what happens to an angel when their vessel is destroyed. I talked about it when when we did for uh, 522 swan song that why wasn't michael killed when he was hit with the holy fire like does that not kill archangels even if it kills every other type of angel because gabriel didn't want to cross holy fire (laughs) even so is michael just special does he have a super special dispensation against holy fire apparently it kills angels but doesn't kill angels Maybe it's just annoying, like super annoying, but it wouldn't work as a trap for an archangel that they use it for many times in the series if it didn't kill them. So why? Why? So it's just another reason I kind of detest Swan Song and just the lack of continuity about what happens to angels who get destroyed and the souls that are occupying their vessels with them. So. Anyway, I just had to get that off my chest because a lot of my notes throughout the series will refer to Adam as being not in the cage all those years, even though we found out he was. It just makes me think less of Sam. And I hate that. I hate that it makes me think less of Sam. So, eh, whatever. But for years, my argument was death gave Dean a false choice based on Dean's own wrong assumption about Adam being in the cage and there being only one, but he like, he needed to make Dean commit to that choice to choose Sam to save over anyone else. Cause that felt like the most important thing here. Not that Adam even being on offer was relevant or whatever. And it really isn't because nobody ever thought Dean would choose Adam over Sam ever. Nobody would have guessed that. Because they would have all been wrong if they had. (laughs) Anyway, back to Dean, standing under a light in the scrapyard, an uncaged light, not the usual caged ones that they use over Cass when he's in his duty to heaven scenes. It's just dusk, and the light is on, and Dean puts on the ring and disappears. He's zapped to a busy street corner, where Tessa greets him. Unhappy with the fact that she has to babysit Dean playing death. Tessa lays out the rules that Dean must follow, and if he doesn't follow them, he loses. She's got a whole list of people that he needs to touch so she can reap them. Dean wants to see the list in advance, and she's like, no, because there's an agenda here. But she's also just waiting for Dean to screw this up. 
We cut to a shot of the Impala parked outside a completely abandoned-looking warehouse. This place is dilapidated. Sam has clearly stolen the Impala, haha, and just driven it off somewhere where he could get a bit of privacy because he is summoning Balthazar. Balthazar is like, oh, yeah, this is on the list of dumbest things ever, summoning the angel who wants to kill you. Sam tells him he needs a spell or a weapon or something that can keep a soul out forever. Balthazar is now intrigued. Sam says it's for him. And Balthazar is like, oh, dear God, where is your soul? It's not still in the cage, is it? And Sam says he doesn't want his soul back. And Balthazar's like, good God, yeah, no, you don't want it back. If it's been tortured by Michael and Lucifer all this time. Balthazar says the spell is easy enough. He'll do it just to have Sam in his debt. Plus, it'll screw over Dean, and he's been looking for a way to screw over Dean since the first time they met. One of the conditions is Sam must scar his vessel so badly that it becomes uninhabitable. He must kill his father. He needs the blood of his father, but his father needn't be blood. So, found family, someone you consider a father, guess who we're talking about? It's Bobby. Even if Sam has no feelings towards anybody right now, Bobby is, for all intents and purposes, a father figure. And Sam has no qualms with this right now. He's like, if this will save me, I don't care. And I won't be able to get my soul back, so I'll never have to care. Well, he's going to care a lot in a little while. We cut to a street where Dean and Tessa are walking towards Dean's first assignment. She advises him that most people will have questions for death, and it's your job to answer them. Dean's like, well, I know what to say, and she's like, no, but what's it all mean is kind of popular. Dean asks for some pointers on how to answer, and she's like, suck it up, it's part of the gig. Do your job. I think it's interesting that they're walking past a sign on the sidewalk that says keys cut while you wait. Like, if there's a key, there has to be a lock or whatever. (laughs) We need all three of that crap. (laughs) I know we haven't watched that episode yet, but man, it's coming up soon. (laughs) They walk into a robbery happening in a convenience store. A man and his son are standing behind the counter as another man with a gun is sticking the place up. Dean is like, okay, but which one am I taking? Tessa tells him not to interfere. They have to see how it plays out. She refuses to tell him. Dean's terrified as the man threatens to shoot the kid. He's like, I do not want to watch this kid die. The robber tells the guy not to forget the drawer under the register where the extra cash is. The clerk gets bold, flings something off the counter. The robber goes to pick it up. And when he does, the clerk quickly reaches into that lower drawer, pulls out a gun, and shoots the robber. And as he collapses, and Dean is, like, shocked at what just transpired, Tessa urges him to go touch the guy, put him out of his misery, let him die, so she can reap his soul. Dean's looking down at this guy who is just not quite dying yet. Tessa's like, tick-tock, like, get a move on. Dean's like, he's in agonizing pain, right? Tessa's like, uh, yeah. And Dean's just like, hmm, interesting. He's letting the man suffer deliberately, 
because he had threatened the life of a child in this robbery. Figures the guy is not a very nice person, and he lets him uh, roast a little bit longer on the floor before he probably gets dragged to hell. I think a little bit of this is Dean enjoying the relief that he did not have to kill a child, but I also think this gives us an interesting look at what death is and how death operates. People die all over the planet, all the time, constantly. I don't think death actually has to walk around with Tessa the Reaper. I think people just die and their souls leave their bodies. Then it's up to Reapers to take them on to their next destination. I think death generally just exists. I think this lesson and the way that death functions in this episode while Dean is wearing the ring is Dean specific and that death doesn't just, you know, like when we see him interacting with Dean, it's not like people have stopped dying worldwide during that time. And he's not like Santa Claus that has to visit your house in person or whatever, you know, like magically or something. I don't think that's how death usually works. I think these people's deaths have been shut off to that automatic leave your body, end your suffering moment that death can do without having to zap himself around the entire globe constantly. Because this is the lesson that Dean needed to learn. Not that this is how death usually functions. Dean eventually does touch the guy and his suffering ends. Well, for a moment anyway. He stands up and the man is now standing behind him, asking why. Dean's like, mostly because you're a dick. Just for this one choice, who knows what this man's life was like before or after. I mean, he wasn't very nice in that moment, but what drove him to that? Was it just who he was? Did he make some terrible choices that led him there? Is it like an act of final desperation for him to have gone in there and threatened to murder a child to rob somebody? What led to that? And is Dean actually determining his fate? Of course not. Tessa gives Dean a look like, okay, whatever, and takes his soul off to be put into its final destination. And we don't get confirmation other than from Dean's saying, oh yeah, trust me, sauna gets hot, like you're going to hell. We don't know that he does. We have to assume he probably does after threatening the life of a child, but who knows what the balance of his entire soul is. We learn how that works much later, that it's the sum total of choices in your life that determine your destiny. I feel like I need to say at least one thing about the episode Death Takes a Holiday when the whole town of people stopped dying, weirdly as part of the apocalypse and fuckery that was designed for them to specifically break a seal. We've had other reapers that were taken out of the picture, and people with grave injuries still died. They just didn't get reaped or taken off to heaven, purgatory, hell, wherever. But they didn't continue living with fatal injuries. Just in that one episode and apparently here, where instead of just getting up and walking around like the few people who were mortally wounded in Death Takes a Holiday, here the guy's just like lying on the floor suffering. So even that doesn't match up. So that's something that I have to chalk up to the specific circumstances of these events, the apocalypse, 
the breaking of a seal, the selection of this town to be the location of that broken seal, and the selection of this town now as Dean's experiment with death and nothing more because the natural order functioned for like two whole seasons with death supposedly dead. You know what I mean? People died during those two years. We saw it happen. So obviously the lack of death on the spot does not cause people to just continue living. (laughs) Anyway, had to put that out there. But Dean's assessment of his first job, well, that wasn't so hard. Like, he could do this. Tessa then leads him to a park where a man's sitting eating a slice of pizza. Dean comments, call me crazy, but this looks like a heart attack. Moments later, begins to have a heart attack. Dean goes over immediately and puts him out of his misery. Once again, the man who's now dead, looking over himself, is like, why? And Dean's like, you think maybe it was the extra cheese? The guy's like, yeah, it was good, though. Dean asks him if that was a local place where he got that pizza. Like, maybe we can swing by there later, pick some up. Pizza worth dying for. And Tessa redirects him. Dean, we have other things we need to get to. Guy is content to just go off with Tessa to whatever his fate is. But he turns back to Dean and is like, wait, tell me what it all means. And Dean looks at him like, oh, God, everything is dust in the wind. And the guy's like, what? It's a Kansas song? That's it? Tessa smiles at Dean, but she apologizes to the guy with, sorry, he's new. As he walks away, Dean shrugs like, I thought that was pretty good, actually. Sam arrives back at Bobby's. Bobby's like, I woke up and you were gone. Where you been? Sam insists he was just driving around, no big. He's not very good at faking casual. Bobby offers him a drink, pours them each a shot of whiskey. Then Dean and Tessa arrive at a hospital. Lots of people die in hospitals, right? They go into a room on the pediatrics ward where a little girl is in bed looking at a photo album with her dad reminiscing about their lives. While the nurse, Jolene, according to her name badge, is taking notes. Dean asks Tessa for confirmation, the dad or the kid. Tessa confirms, the kid. She's got a teddy bear that looks very much like the bear that went nuts back in the Wishing Well episode. The existential crisis teddy bear. And Dean is having that existential crisis right now. He does not want to kill a 12-year-old. Especially not one who apparently has lived most of her life without her mom. She doesn't recognize a photo of her mom, and her dad has to explain it to her. Dean is worried about the dad, too. Does this guy have any other family? Tessa tells him no. This is Dean's real test. Tessa tells him, what, you think it was going to be all armed robbers and heart attacks waiting to happen? And Dean just cannot wrap his head around it. Even though she has a serious heart condition, she's 12, and he cannot see the justice in having to let her die. Dean wants to be taken to the next person to kill. He does not want to do this one. Tessa's like, you have to. This is how it works. Dean's like, who says? Death? Well, I'm death. Tessa's like, no, you know what I mean. The big boss tells us what we need to do. And we do it. That's the natural order. She uses the word 
destiny. And Dean hates destiny. You know, screw that right in the face, right? Dean goes on a little rant about how he's spent his whole life fighting against destiny. Like that whole apocalypse that they stopped. He's like, it's just a bunch of overpowered idiots trying to control humans. And Dean says, the girl lives. Screw destiny. Tessa's like, you know what's amazing? Is that you don't even believe a word you're saying. Dean insists he does. Tessa's like, well, so all the times that you messed with life and death, it just turned out great for you? You didn't struggle with it at all? And yeah, he can't deny that. He felt like shit after his father traded his life for Dean's. Tessa even knows how awful he felt after that. He knows how much it sucked when he traded his life for Sam's. He knows how much it sucked when he went to hell and then came back. And now he knows how much Sam's life is sucking with his soul stuck in the cage. And yet he's death. She's 12. And she's not dying today. He refuses to do it. The little girl is wheeled out by her nurse in a wheelchair, followed by her dad. And Dean just watches her go, like daring Tessa to make him do it. She doesn't. But Dean has now broken the rules. Technically, he's lost his bet. We cut back to Bobby, dealing a hand of cards with Sam. Sam is looking super shifty. Notices a toolbox across the room, eyes up a huge pipe wrench sitting in it. Like, ah, yes, there's my weapon of choice and convenience. I'm just going to clobber Bobby over the head with a pipe wrench. But he just sits there calmly playing his hand of cards. Bobby's watching him like a hawk. Back at the hospital, the doctor is telling the father, it's like a miracle. He's never seen anything in his career like it. But her heart just seems to have miraculously healed itself and he doesn't have to operate. The dad wheels the little girl back to her room like both laughing, thrilled at this news. And while Dean and Tessa are just standing there, Jolene, the nurse, is leaving work early now that they don't have to do the surgery on the little girl. And she walks right through Tessa. She has a little brush with death. She shivers like she doesn't understand what's just happened, but she's on the phone with her husband, letting him know that she's getting off work early. What a surprise. She'll be home soon. Tessa understands what's just happened and the tragedy caused by Dean's refusal to do his job. There's always a consequence. The death has to go somewhere, you know? To Dean, though, he's just made two people's nights the father, and that nurse who now gets to go home to her husband early. Back at Bobby's, they finish a deal. Sam wins, rakes in his chips. Bobby asks if he wants another beer, gets up to go get it. And Sam's like, yeah, sure. Sam jumps out of his chair real quick, goes directly for that pipe wrench. And Bobby grabs a baton out of the fridge, turns around and whacks Sam with it, knocking him out cold. He's like, I may have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. Like he'd been waiting for Sam to try something. Knew he would. He goes to pick up a coil of rope to tie Sam up with. But by the time Bobby looks back, Sam is already gone. Maybe he was only faking being passed out. (laughs) But he was really quick to recover. And now Bobby's in even worse trouble. He doesn't even know where Sam is. 
He just knows that Sam's out to get him. Now, if I was Bobby in this circumstance, I would have just gotten in the car and gone. You know what I mean? Because even if Dean came back with death and was like, where's Sam? I've got his soul right here. It's like, you could just wait and find him another day. You know what I mean? (laughs) Nobody needed to have babysat Sam's body through all of this. So if I was Bobby, I would have like gotten in the nearest car and just started driving for like as long as it took to get the fuck away from Sam. But Bobby is clearly a better person than I am. (laughs) Bobby throws the bolts on the cellar door and then goes and hides in the closet where Sam pulls a scene straight from The Shining, hacking through the door with an axe or something similar Sam's like, I need to do this, Bobby. You shouldn't have cornered yourself. And Bobby's like, I didn't. He pulls a lever in the closet and a trap door in the floor opens. He installed that after he got trapped in there with Dean when the whole town turned to zombies trying to eat them. Sam goes falling through the trap door into the cellar, tries to break down the door and can't. He starts whacking it with a crowbar Bobby's like, there's no point. It's a reinforced steel core with a titanium kick plate. You're not breaking it down. Now, do you want to explain what the hell is going on with you? Sam explains everything that Balthazar told him about running the spell to keep his soul out. Bobby is arguing on Dean's behalf. He's got a way to make it safe. Sam, without his soul, is like, but Dean is ready to kill me just to get his little brother Sammy back. Because he's burning in hell. He doesn't even care about his own soul suffering. He thinks of it as like a different guy. Not even him. He's like, Dean doesn't care about me. It's like, well, yeah, because there's no you there to care about, you dipshit. (laughs) But it's very hard to have any sympathy for this version of Sam without his soul. I've heard people talk softly about soulless Sam over the years. And it's just like, how can you view him with any sort of softness? (laughs) He's absolutely ruthless and awful. I want squishy Sam back. Bobby tells Sam through the door that, yeah, it's kind of scary thinking what could happen to you because of this. But you know what's even scarier? You right now. You're not right. This is not right, Sam. And when Bobby finishes his little speech, he's waiting for Sam to reply, and Sam doesn't. And Bobby's worried that somehow he's gotten out because nothing holds soulless Sam. Not chains, not handcuffs, not ropes, not locked rooms, nothing. And Bobby resigns himself with a angrily grumbled balls. Ain't nobody killing me in my house but me. He opens the door, looks around. Sam is no longer sitting on the steps. It's a trap. Bobby very cautiously explores the basement, looks in through the little window into the panic room, sees a ladder leading up to the escape hatch ventilation above, and thinks that Sam may have climbed his way out, goes to reach for the handle of the door, and it's covered with blood, which is just great, not ominous at all. Back at the hospital, Dean is complaining to Tessa that she's giving him the silent treatment as she walks with all haste over to a window to see an ambulance pulling up outside. She's like, damn it, I knew it. 
Dean's like, what, what? He still doesn't see the terror of what he's done yet. Paramedics wheel in the nurse who had been in a car accident, fractured spine, had a heart attack in the ambulance, and she needs the heart surgeon. But where is he? He went home because the surgery was canceled, because this nurse wouldn't have even been in this accident if she had been operating on that little girl who Dean was supposed to kill. But I venture to say if Dean had already killed the little girl, she wouldn't have been having heart surgery that night anyway, and the nurse still would have gone home early. The nurse still would have died. This is just all punishment for Dean to make him think about what he has a choice over and whose fate he is playing with and what him and Sam have done to the natural order that their choices and actions have consequences and sometimes cosmic consequences, which is a phrase we won't really get until season 12, that there will be cosmic consequences for choices you make, breaking deals with death, not living up to your end of the bargain. Well, Dean is seeing a cosmic consequence here. He refused to kill this little girl. They hung around the hospital. Maybe this nurse would have just left the hospital early and not gotten in this accident if she hadn't walked through Tessa, if Tessa hadn't been lingering there while Dean tried to gloat about having saved the little girl. They would have moved on already to their next job. But no. Dean had to have this lesson. His choices have consequences. And now he's got it on his conscience that this woman died. There's nobody to save her. Tessa explains it as he knocked over a domino and now they're going to start falling. Tessa pushes Dean to take her, to put her out of her misery, to kill her. And Dean's like, what? She's not on the list. And Tessa insists... Everything you do has consequences. This is the consequence of your refusal to take that little girl earlier. There's only going to be more consequences unless you take her. Dean is angry, though, because this nurse had nothing to do with any of this. Why is her life being affected like this? He doesn't have answers to that, but this is the consequence. Do your damn job, Dean. You put on the ring. This is your responsibility handle it. And Tessa uses her as a painful example. She's like, is that me? And Tessa doesn't even leave it to Dean to answer her questions. She makes it an object lesson, probably because death has instructed her to do so. Tells this woman, I'm sorry, you were supposed to live for many decades, have kids, grandkids. And the woman asks, but then why? Why am I dead? Tessa looks at Dean because he screwed up. And it's going to be reminiscent of this when Dean makes his excuse in the hospital in a few episodes, when he has Cass erase Lisa and Ben's memories of him. I'm sorry, I lost control for a minute. It was an accident. In sort of the same way, he has to atone for this woman's death right here. As Tessa walks her away, Her husband comes running into the hospital. Where's my wife? Where is she? Sobbing over her body. He's now alone too, just like that little girl's father would have been. And Dean has to watch all of this tragedy, loss, suffering play out because of his choice. 
What makes that little girl in her father's life any more than these people's lives that he's now ruined or believes he's ruined? Back upstairs in the little girl's room, Tessa's telling Dean again, you saw what happened to the nurse? Go kill that little girl as she and her dad are like making plans for their future, planning to take a vacation. Tessa tells him, I tried to tell you what you already know. She's disrupting the natural order by being alive. She's supposed to be dead. Now fix your mistake. But Dean's looking out the window and he's looking at another domino about to fall. The result of his mistake. He sees Jolene's husband walking out of a bar across the street, clearly had a couple drinks and is climbing behind the wheel of his car. Dean cannot let this guy kill himself because of his stupid mistake. Dean just says, give me a minute. Like, he's ready to kill this little girl, but he's got to save this other man first. He's got to stop the dominoes from falling. And before Tessa can even ask him what he's talking about, Dean disappears. Back at Bobby's, he's playing hide-and-seek with Sam in the scrapyard, following a trail of little blood smears that he's finding everywhere. He opens the doors to the barn, peering inside cautiously, and gets clobbered from behind by Sam, who drags him inside. Back to Dean, now riding shotgun with the really drunk husband of the dead nurse. Dean is sitting there as he continues drinking out of a bottle, and he's urging the man, come on guy, pull over, turn the car off, you're going to get yourself killed. And instead, the guy floors it. And Dean can't just watch this guy kill himself. He's speeding into cross traffic. He almost gets clobbered by a bus. Dean finally is like, I'm not going to get through to this guy invisibly. He takes off the ring, suddenly appears next to the guy, turns the wheel hard, prevents him from getting crushed by a bus, but steers him to crash into another parked car. The guy will live, though. And everyone on that bus will live. Nobody else got hurt, but Dean lost his bet. He took the ring off. Dean gets out of the car and starts yelling for Tessa, admitting that he lost, that Sam screwed, that the least she could do is zap his ass back home. As the guy behind the wheel slowly wakes up and sees Dean yelling, and he's like, what the hell is going on? This guy just appeared in the seat next to me, crashed me into this and now he's just yelling, what the hell is going on? Dean gets no response, and he realizes he's still got the ring, and he puts it back on. From the point of view of that poor driver, who's just had a possible slight head injury, is totally drunk, has been through all kinds of trauma this evening, he just watches Dean completely disappear and probably thinks he just hallucinated him which is honestly for the best for Dean as far as being responsible for this car crash. But as soon as Dean has the ring on, he can see Tessa again standing right there watching him. He's like, I lost the bet. And she actually says, sorry about your brother. Dean tells her, okay, let's go. But he doesn't mean back to the scrapyard. He's got one more thing he needs to do first. Dean zaps them back to the little girl's hospital room. He needs to put this right. He understands now that there is a natural order to things. And even if he hates it and will spend the rest of his life fighting against it, 
he cannot have this burden on himself of having killed other innocent people because he refused to do the one thing that he was required to do. Tessa argues with him, it's over, you took the ring off, you don't have to do this now. And Dean's like, yeah, nobody really skates by. It's not a kindness to force her to live, going through her entire life as this magnet for grief and destruction because she doesn't belong here anymore. Dean walks over to the bed, whispers to the father, you should say your goodbyes, man. And he startles awake, like on some level he heard Dean. And Dean gives him a moment to just look at his daughter before he touches her. And her heart monitor flatlines. There is a distinct difference, I think, just talking about the cosmology of the show and whose death defies the natural order and fighting against it when it doesn't defy the natural order. Like everything that is done to Sam and Dean in the name of the story, them fighting to come back from the dead, fighting to save each other, fighting even to save Cass that some deaths violate the natural order. They're a manipulation of the natural order to achieve specific outcomes, like the whole of the apocalypse, Sam and Dean being set up for all of that, that it had to violate the natural order to bring an end to the natural order and them fighting against it, I think, was the healing option. But mostly it's, the cataclysmic option, but fighting directly against manipulations of the natural order that put them in these circumstances to begin with, I think that's different cosmically than a lot of what else we see happen in the show. When, like, Cass tells Dean, when Dean complains, why why do all these good people have to die? And Cass is like, you're different? Yeah, he is different, because the reasons that he keeps dying, and Sam keeps dying, and Cass keeps dying, is part of the story. It's being manipulated into that and for them to fight back against. So the natural order doesn't apply to them in the same way it does to everyone else. And I think that's how the show justifies what makes them different. It's like God isn't specifically intervening to cause this little girl and her family pain for the sake of drama for his story, you know, like he does with Sam and Dean, because that's the story he's specifically focused on. Them making choices the same way that he himself would have, that he forced Cain and Abel to, that he forced Adam and Eve to, that he forced everybody in his main character role into over the entirety of creation. I think this is a really good time to remind people of what we will learn at the end of season 14 and throughout season 15 as well about Chuck and his writing process and his creative process and why he continued to retell this same story over and over and over again, trying to push Sam and Dean to make the right choice in an, a very similar way Death's lesson to Dean in this episode is the same lesson that Chuck was trying to hammer into them all those years. And while Dean learns it in this one specific context about letting people die, he does not learn it in the ultimate way that Chuck 
really wants him to, to internalize. Maybe you just need to kill your brother to save everybody else, you know, because that's the choice that Chuck made when he locked up Amara. And that's his story that he tells over and over, forcing everybody else into the same circumstances where they're supposed to make the same choice he did to validate him. And of course, Dean will never make that choice. He eventually will be pushed to let himself die when he is under the assumption that Chuck's no longer interfering with their lives because they think they defeated Chuck when really he just kind of flaked off. We won't go into the whole Chuck one theory in this episode here, but it's all tied in because this is the same theme that all of that was playing on. And it took until season 15 to fully break Dean to the point where he was willing. Nay, believed it was their only choice to make that sacrifice. And it drove him bonkers and it drove Chuck bonkers. He's like, you guys still can't figure this out, that you just need to do what you're told, kind of follow orders, read the script. And was like, okay, well, now you watch your kid die. Ha ha. And put it all on Jack. And I think that's what happened for the rest of the series. But we'll talk about that at some future point, because otherwise this will turn into a four-hour ranty lecture about the series finale. And we don't need that today. (laughs) But I will say that, yeah, death operates in a way in the story is like a functionary of Chuck's bigger story and is trying to push Dean into accepting this lesson. And yeah, he gets it on the specific case level of this story in this episode with this little girl. But uh, overall, it doesn't stick, does it? And I love that about our Dean and about our Sam. Who doesn't want to let it stick either? I mean, Dean has to talk him around a lot more, but you know, overall, they're on the path of, no, we don't let ourselves be pawns in that cosmic play. And bless them. That's the whole reason we got 15 seasons of the show. (laughs) So back to talking about those. Back at Bobby's, Sam has almost finished assembling the spell. Bobby's tied to a chair in a sigil painted on the floor with a little altar set up. And Bobby's begging for his life. He's like, Sam, somewhere deep down in there, you've got to know I've been like a father to you. Sam's like, yeah, that's just it. Sorry. And he tilts his head back like he's going to slice his throat open. And Dean appears behind him and grabs his arm before he can hit him with the downstroke. He's like, hi, Sam. And then just punches him in the face, knocks him out cold just in time to save Bobby's life. This time, they take no chances. They chain Sam to the cot in the panic room. And as far as Dean knows at this moment, he lost the bet with death. He's not even able to put Sam's soul back. So for all intents and purposes, Sam was about to kill Bobby for nothing, as far as everybody believes at this moment. But what's to stop Sam from doing it again? Trying to kill somebody else, just because he believes he has to. Dean's still playing with death's ring. Like, what am I supposed to do here? I can't just live with him like this. Bobby's like, I don't know. Like, they're both thinking, I've got to kill Sam, don't I? Dean goes back into Bobby's kitchen, and he's greeted by death, who's brought food and invites Dean to join him. Death even brought Dean a bacon dog to enjoy. 
They have a conversation, starting with Death talking about how he'd have a little treat before he put the ring back on, because it is a heavy burden. Sometimes you just want it off, right, Dean? Dean hands over the ring, sets it on the table, and tells Death, you know I failed. Screwed up the whole natural order thing. Death asks him, so if you could go back and do it again, would you just kill the little girl? No fuss, no stomping your feet. And Dean honestly says, knowing what I know now, yeah, I would. And Death is relieved. Dean actually learned the lesson that he was trying to impart. Death goes into a little bit more detail about this lesson he wanted Dean to take away. It's more than what Dean thinks. Wrecking the natural order is a little more complicated when you have to clean up the mess it leaves behind, isn't it? The lesson he wanted Dean to learn is to stop throwing away his own life, to stop being so willing to trade himself for other people, because it's not always going to bounce right back to you, which should have been the ultimate lesson of Supernatural, honestly, where Dean gets to live, right? And gets to stop having to sign himself over to defend the natural order anymore. Death gives Dean a very serious, very intent lesson on what a human soul is. It's vulnerable, but stronger than you can believe and more valuable than you can imagine. So we've already seen souls as currency, souls as a power source, and we have so much more to learn about souls this season. Dean, though, gets a little bit pushy. He's really testing his luck, as he is wont to do with cosmic beings. He tells Death, yeah, I lost today. I think you knew going in that I wouldn't last the day. And he challenges him. He's like, just admit that it was rigged from the start. And it's like, oh, Dean, hon, yeah, it was rigged from the start. It was never about the wager. It was about you learning this lesson. Because there's a limit on what death can just come out and, like, tell you in detail. He can't interfere with the natural order. He can't just tell you, oh, by the way, your friend Cass is up to all this shit trying to crack souls out of purgatory for power so he can defeat Raphael. Like, that is not something that death can just tell Dean because that would break the natural order. Even if Cass is trying to break the natural order by doing that, you know what I mean? But death can give lessons in this very specific and narrow way that serves his function. And he really wants Dean to get this. Death stands up and tells Dean that he's got to get to hell to retrieve Sam's soul. And Dean's shocked by this. He's like, why would you do that for me? And Death's like, I'm not doing it for you. You and your brother are an affront to the natural order on a global scale. You cause cosmic mess everywhere, but you have your uses. And this is why I love when we meet Billy. She's the law and order reaper. And then after she's killed and comes back as death, because that's the poetic justice of being the first reaper killed after death is, she has a whole different perspective on Sam and Dean. She's no longer out to make sure that they die and never come back again. She is disgruntled to learn what their place in the cosmic order actually is and that they are a required disruption of the natural order. 
and much as it grinds her gears, she works with them because as death, she's got the bigger picture on it. And I love that it's implied that this version of death had the same larger picture with the cosmic consequences of who Sam and Dean are to this universe. Death tells Dean here that right now he's digging at something. Intrepid detective, keep digging. It's all about the souls. Dean does not understand this, and Death tells him, you'll understand when it's time. And unfortunately, it's not in time for Dean to actually stop any of it from happening, but at least he knows what's going on when it starts. Death is about to slip his ring back on to walk into the cage. And Dean's like, wait, this wall thing with Sam, is that really going to work? And just like Dr. Robert said at the beginning of the episode, when he gave Dean a 75% chance of him being revived afterwards, Death tells Dean, call it 75%, that the wall works. As soon as Death is gone, Dean runs downstairs with Bobby and orders him to open the door. Bobby had just been sort of resting down there, unaware that Dean had a big old dinnertime conversation with Death. They get the door open just in time to watch Death sitting down on Sam's cot and opening an old-fashioned doctor's bag that a bright light shines out of, Sam's soul. And as Sam is begging not to do this to him... Death gives him the instructions about not scratching the wall that he's going to put up in Sam's head, no matter how itchy it is, because scratching it, you will not like what happens. Dean and Bobby stand outside the room, and Sam just keeps begging them to not do this. Death crams his soul in anyway, and Sam screams. And that's where the episode ends. Sam in excruciating pain as he's forced to confront his own soul. Abused in hell, yes, but also the part of him that would hate everything that his body had done without a conscience, without a moral compass, and just the horrific and awful things he's done. In some way, the soulless part of Sam was begging not to have to confront that. And I understand why Sam, with his soul back, feels compelled to explore those broken parts of himself when he learns the truth. But he can't leave it alone. He can't just not scratch that wall. And so we're going to have to suffer with Sam, with Dean, with Cass, with everybody, with Bobby, now having this experience of Sam trying to kill him and not really trusting Sam, even though he's got his soul back now, not liking what Dean's choices are and how all of this got dealt with, not liking not being able to talk to Sam honestly and feeling like he can't really get resolution or mention even what Sam did to him, that Sam had been ready to kill him. He was going to die by Sam's hand. Yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable for a while, especially in next week's episode, 612 Like a Virgin with the dragons and the uh, ongoing lying. And it's just, (sighs) I mean, Cass shows up, but he's still lying to everybody and it's very uncomfortable. And it's almost like he breaks the truth to Sam on purpose. But, you know, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) 
We'll deal with that next week. This week, we've got more than enough to deal with before we dive into my three least favorite episodes of the season, which are some of my least favorite episodes of the whole series. So right from one of my top episodes of the series to some of my bottom episodes of the series. Boy, is season six a magical grab bag of weirdness. I swear it does get better. (laughs) But not for the next three episodes. Anyway, I suppose I got everything I needed to say about death and the cosmic consequences and the natural order and even Adam in the cage and soulless Sam because thank God he's got his soul back now and I can go back to liking Sam again <laughs> instead of just being like, oh my God, somebody just kill him. Put, put us out of his misery. I don't know. I'm very, very happy that he got his soul back, even if it takes him a long time to get over that, like until towards the end of season seven, really. But he's going to be suffering with these consequences for a long time. And I can understand why Jared had a hard time during this run of episodes, just with his own mental health, for having to play such a broken character, struggling through so much existential awfulness. It's got to be just grind to play this character going through this shit because I would struggle with it (laughs) if it was me oh my god yeah so I really do start feeling for Sam here which is a nice refreshing change of pace isn't it anyway until next week you can find me on tumblr at mittensmorgle or at spngeorge you can find me on discord at mittensmorgle Or you can email me at mittensmorgle at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. I could probably talk for days, weeks, months, and years about death, the natural order, cosmic consequences, the cosmic wrenches that Sam and Dean's existence and repeated resurrections and bouncing back and fighting against destiny and all of that does in a universe but i'm going to pinch myself off here because oh my god (laughs) but this to me is the core of what supernatural is what is sam and dean's place in the narrative and how does that affect the rest of their universe not because they choose that but because it was chosen for them by god They were put in these circumstances, and they're just doing their best to live their lives, to try and get out from under this, to try and stop cosmic beings from trying to fuck over the natural order. And in doing so, yeah, they probably throw a few wrenches into what the natural order is, but I sincerely doubt that the apocalypse was good for the natural order, or you know, everything that Raphael is trying to do now and restarting the apocalypse is good for the natural order. That breaking into alternate universes is good for the natural order. That even a being like Jack, who they raised to love and be a Winchester, like, I don't know if he's great for the natural order. (laughs) And his whole idea of bringing paradise is just, what does that even mean in Supernatural? Because that's just like the removal of free will, at least according to the show, like all the rest of canon. It's never a good thing. Anyway, starting off on a completely different lecture right here at the end.
So I'm going to shut up. Have a good day, everyone.